0: This is The Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Rinella. So yeah, Colin, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, like I mentioned in our emails back and forth, I have a lot of heartburn about the traditional hunting nonprofits um I see them as and it, it's it's complicated I just had I've had two hunting nonprofits on the last 2 weeks um but um so st- I still am on board with some of what they do and i try to work with them where i align with them but i wouldn't give them a penny um at this point because i believe that their primary stakeholder group is not the sportsman but the hunting industry um the biggest problems i see for hunters Nowadays is crowding, lack of access, in inability to draw tags, and I think of those as all stemming from oh, and leasing, which is lack of access. Yeah, but I think of those things as all stemming from there being more hunters than there is uh, hunting resource land and animals to 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 support that number of hunters. And yet all these nonprofits are engaged and always engaged, relentlessly engaged in trying to bring more hunters into the fold. And I think that that's primarily because it's it's a demand that the dollars they get from the hunting industry um, come with strings attached. So, yeah, I, I just can't. I can't full throatedly get behind a hunting nonprofit. When I see by, my by my lights, they're, they're perpetuating and exacerbating the biggest problems I see in hunting today. So I think that there are other hunters out there that feel like me. Um, and so we want to know what what we can do with our conservation and access donations that help with those things help what we can do with our with our um, philanthropy that helps with conservation and access but doesn't feed the beast that is the hunting industry so um, you guys have been for a long time, some, an organization, you work for uh, nature conservancy that I've wanted to talk with. And even in preparing to talk with you, I learned a little bit more about the nature conservancy. I didn't even know until a couple of months ago that the nature conservancy employed wildlife biologists. Uh, I thought they were just, um, and that's what you do for a living, right? That's right. Yeah. And I yeah. thought they, I, for some reason, I just thought that they they were involved. They were in, they, uh, they were a land trust. They are a land trust. That's a component too, right?
1: Yeah, that's kind of our origins. Um, we started as a land trust. And I think the way we talk about it now is that we have a lot more tools in our toolbox and uh we do a lot of collaborations we do a lot of science i was looking up some stats for this talk and we have over 400 scientists on staff um,
0: and the and the and the toolbox is designed the the problem it's designed to fix is is uh or is uh well maybe not, not the problem it's trying to fix but the thing it's trying to do is conserve right conserve habitat conserve Yeah.
1: So our, our mission statement is, I've got it right here as a, you know, working to create a world where people and nature thrive. Um, Mm. And so every chapter is a little different. Um, I'm in the Alaska chapter um, and we are, we're focused on habitat. And so we work to conserve, restore, um, yeah habitat that's the num- that's the name of our game and so that really creates you know more hunting opportunities for everybody um does uh
0: is um the conservation easement a, a tool in the alaska specific tnc toolbox
1: not no it's not there's really. so much public uh, we, land there right yeah we i think uh you know, the Alaska chapter has been around since 1989. And um, in the early days, there was some conservation easement work. But Alaska's got so much public land that um, that's really not an effective tool to to really get things done on a large scale. So a lot of what we do is collaborate with um, federal agencies, state agencies, native corporations um, on science, on uh, restoration um, community forest projects. Uh, we even do some kind of community development projects, essentially providing alternatives to, you know, intensive resource extraction. Um, and so it's a whole, it's a whole suite of things in Alaska where we're, we're pretty much, um, not in the, the land trust business. We have one, we've got one preserve, um, and that's it
0: a preserve is different than a conservation easement
1: yeah so a preserve is something where you know we're you know we're managing it like a park um with a little bit different rules than than parks and you might think of uh a conservation easement is um you know uh, legislation placed on the land um to meet some goal uh we're not you know you might not be managing at all um yeah
0: okay now I've now i
1: I've,
0: i have so many questions <laughs> already that like i want to ask any one of them so okay i want to talk about this park for a minute i want to understand that a little better but first so what does my oh, i don't even understand this my wife's ranch is in a conservation isn't it nature conservancy conservation easement so my wife's ranch goes into this conservation easement what role did, did the nature conservancy play in that
1: you know this is uh conservation easements really are in my wheelhouse um and i'm gonna have someone on
0: <laughs> to talk about them
1: yeah, that that's real. I you know I I I I mostly do science, um, and so conservation easements is is, is a really different skill set within TNC, and and because they're so rare in Alaska, or they, we don't really do them anymore. Um, yeah, I haven't been around them, but essentially the idea is, um, you know, you're 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 putting the land into conservation, um, and TNC can help you do that. It's a real estate you know transaction of sorts. Um, and sometimes there's, you know, there's a money involved where someone will get paid to put their land in conservation easement, or sometimes people volunteer to do it. I know that my, uh, uncle, uh, still lives on the family farm and he put, you know, some of his pastures and conservation easement, um, as something he wanted to do for the land. Uh, and, uh, that's something people can do, you know, just voluntarily do.
0: Yeah. So does T does TNC pay for it? Like if did they, do they reimburse the landowner for putting it in?
1: Yeah. Again, this is really not in my wheelhouse, but okay. I think in some situations um, there are. Uh, yeah. There are folks compensated for um, you know, uh, taking their land, um, and doing something else with it than they were previously. So say it's ranch land and you put it into a, a conservation easement and, um, it might not be, you know, and then they say, okay, we're going to commit to doing something else with it. You know, and in the case of your wife, it sounds like, uh, that, that they, they conserved it for ranching, which might be the case. Yeah. It's um, a
0: guest ranch.
1: So, so, another, you know, that maybe the landowner, another alternative would be to sell it to somebody that wanted to develop it for, uh, you know, housing development. Um, And so, through the conservation easement, there are stipulations on, you know, what can be done on that land. And it sounds like in the case of uh, your wife, uh, ranching was okay, but maybe developing development is not, I know, the is thing. not okay. Yeah, and so, TNC is really interested in... Um, supporting things that you know make ecological sense um as well as you know providing jobs uh i think ranching has proved that it can work in certain places in certain ways if done right um and so i'm not sure what chapter that is but uh you know colorado works on that kind of thing in montana
0: so uh uh the guy i'm gonna have on is the is mace hack do you know that name no You're there? how many people work for the nature conservancy
1: yeah so i was trying to look that up for you too uh i don't have the hard numbers here um but it's a few thousand um there's a chapter in every state uh we work or directly or indirectly in 76 con- 76 countries so we're we're the largest environmental nonprofit in the world wow. um And so we are, we are all over. Um, and, uh, one of our mottos are together we find a way. And so we, our sweet spot, our niche is really collaboration, convening, bringing people together. Um, we're, you know, not sort of conflict oriented. We're very collaborative, very solutions oriented. Um, and we're very habitat focused. And so, uh, it's a it's a nice place to be <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
0: yep. i uh i i, I mean I'm, I'm sure the the thought process and and the grand vision be behind what you do on a daily basis is the same as what or very similar to myself i'm a i'm a research ecologist and i i, I work on trying to restore messed up land primarily And right now I'm also working a lot on trying to get flowering plants to grow on CRP land to support pollinators. So, I mean, you work on critters and I work on plants, but, and we're going to get into your work, but I just have some more questions. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, okay. Now, now these are, we're getting into questions that weren't even on my list, but now I have to ask. Um. Well, this one was, I think this is a natural point to ask, What? how are you funded? Is it just through donations?
1: Uh, no, it's not just through t- donations, and every chapter is a little different. Um, oh, you know. so when you say chapter, they're, like, distinct?
0: I yes, just was had it going that all the money came into a central location, and then it was doled out to these chapters.
1: Oh, you know, there's uh, again. I'm uh, philanthropy. You know, philanthropy and finance is not not necessarily my wheelhouse either. But basically, you know, there there is the um, the broad organization. You know, based out of uh, DC, uh, East Coast, Virginia. Um, that's where they're headquartered. That's the headquarters. Yep. Okay. And they provide, you know, a lot of sort of services for the state chapters. So there is a chapter in every state and they are semi-autonomous, um, you know, organizations that have to f- fundraise um, for themselves. There's some amount of support that comes from an infrastructure and guidance that's that comes from the head office. Um and so, yeah, they're all a little unique. And, um, you know, in places where there are a lot more people, uh, you know, in members, um, you get, you know, generally get more donations. So the California chapter, for example, has uh, is very well funded. There's a lot of resources in California and the Alaska chapter. You know, we get a funding from anywhere from, you know, about, you know, big foundations to individual donors like you. Um, it's, it's a whole range. And then we also do a lot of, uh, we apply for a lot of, uh, grants and, um, we develop proposals with state agencies and federal agencies like fish and wildlife, fish and game, um, the forest service, things like that. Um, and we're just, we're just a collaborator on the project and we offer our time. And generally, uh, you know, um, we're welcome in a lot of different sort of processes.
0: Okay. That, that. It's starting to, I'm starting to get a broad sense of how the funding works. That's great. Yeah, uh, yeah. But so you would be, one would be a member. If one were a member of the nature conservancy, one would, could be a member of the national organization or a state chapter.
1: Yes, exactly. So you could go to nature.org is our main website and you could sign up to be a member and you get information about what we're doing um and you you know you get uh sort of the the updates via email as well as some mailed stuff um and then you could would, also would
0: you, a, could you would you be signing up to be a member of a particular state or
1: would uh, you be- i you know honestly i don't know that question okay. um typically people do have a home chapter so if you live in wisconsin you would You know, you'd get information from the Wisconsin chapter as well as the broader organization. Um, Yeah, it's it's a little more place-based. So, you know, yeah, and you you go basically, if you wanted to be a part of the Alaska chapter, you'd go to nature.org forward slash Alaska, and there'd be information there on how to be a member of the Alaska chapter. Um, And once you're involved,
0: do you get updates on what the chapter is doing?
1: Yeah, we've got, you know, we've got newsletters, we've got, um, brochures on sort of our, you know, our annual, um, projects and, uh, we've got social media, you know, we've got okay. Facebook, uh, Twitter, all these things you can follow. Um, yeah. And there's just way you know, there's also ways to sort of, you know, provide feedback on what we're doing. Um, you know, you can submit your name to be on the board, those sorts of things. Um, it's a board run organization, both nationally as well as state chapters. Um, and it's do you ever a, have gatherings? We gatherings, let's see that's a good question. We do have a lot of community events is what I describe them as more in Alaska. So if we're you know we're um doing a project somewhere and some com- community will you know, we'll have a dinner and uh, we'll invite the town um and partners, whoever wants to come. And it could be just a celebration of something that's happened, or it could be informational, this is what we're working on, or it could be more structured, like, you know, we want to design some projects, let's get some feedback, uh, things like that, um, is, is probably the, you know, what? how I might describe our gatherings. Okay, can I ask about the park? Do you guys own the park? We do. Yep, it's called the Gustavus Preserve. It's in Gustavus. Um, it's you know beautiful Alaskan habitat for you know all kinds of species. How big um, is it? Good question. I think it's something around four thousand acres, um, which is not not huge on because you know it's tiny on the scale of Alaska, and there are other, much other much bigger preserves in. Was um, it
0: donated to you? to the nature conservancy or to the nature conservancy purchase it?
1: I'm not sure. I kind of think it was purchased. Um, but that's again, really just not, not my wheelhouse. And, Mm -hmm. you know, generally actually the nature conservancy is, uh, slowly kind of reviewing the preserves it has. And in, in, in many cases, um, trying to, um, you know, give them to a more local agency. Um, be it okay, the,
0: like a fish and game management agency, yeah, or state yeah, or, or
1: or a tribe or, or
0: municipality um, or something. Yep, yeah, okay. Yep. If
1: if you're if, trying to get
0: out of that biz,
1: exactly. I think we we realize that we can't we can't buy our way to um, conservation success. I think you know it it might make sense in some places where, you know, the landscape is really fragmented and there are these critical pieces of land. Um, but, uh, on a global scale, we really need to be working on, um, policy. We need to be working, um, with the agencies that manage, you know, huge parcels of land, um, governments, those sorts of things. And so, we're we're getting away from sort of the land trust model. Um, oh, really? Okay. Oh yeah. Yep. For sure. Oh, I had no idea. There's some preserves that are that are um, considered, um, you know, iconic, and uh, that model works, and uh-huh. they will likely, you know, uh, stay. Um, but others, uh, TNC is looking for um, more local hosts uh, to to take care of them. Um, and, you know, conservation dollars are limited and managing and protecting, you know, some of these, uh, parcels is, is expensive. You know, you got to make sure nobody's, you know, dumping their garbage and, uh, running their four wheeler across it and all those things. And, um, we're, we're, we're looking to do a little less of that. Although there are some parcels I think that, that are, that are, uh, TNC probably won't let go of. Um, but I don't know again, that's not my wheelhouse. Yeah. 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 A friend
0: of mine was just telling me that there's, that the nature conservancy owns a, a lot of land in the East coast. Would that, you think that'd be preserves or you think, uh, they sometimes own the conservate the land that the conservation easement is on too. Right. Or is that saying the same thing twice?
1: Um, I think you can have, I'm again, I'm out of my wheelhouse. I think you can have both, you know, you can have a different landowner with a conservation easement placed on it by somebody else. Um, you know, the TNC started in the Northeast. Uh, that's where I'm originally from. Um, and so there are a lot more preserved and, you know, as you go West, obviously there's just more federal land, uh, state land. Um, and that model is maybe not as effective as, uh, as as it might be in places like the Northeast, where right because there's are.
0: there's the land, land the out out west there's just so much public land that if you guys yeah have a little it's preserve, much better it's like the, it's underwhelming right?
1: yeah you know, <laughs> yeah you might you know the better better bang for your buck is to make friends with somebody at BLM or Forest Service and um you know work with them on projects that that uh you know have an impact at scale. Um, yeah. So in Southeast Alaska, where I am, we work a lot with the U.S. Forest Service. I'm I'm right in the middle of the Tongass National Forest, and uh, we do a lot of work with them. Um, okay. And that's, you know, 17 million acres. And so if you can make a little change uh, that affects 17 million acres, it makes a lot more sense than, you know, a little conservation easement somewhere. Yeah. So land that's in a
0: concert uh, nature Conservancy, conservancy conservation easement, but you got but Tate Nature Conservancy doesn't own the land, then whether or not that's open to hunting is at the discretion of the landowner, I would imagine.
1: Oof! I wouldn't even venture to guess. Uh, well, it must be in part because there's hunting can, loud on our uh, there's hunting loud on our preserve here in Alaska. Oh, is there?
0: Okay, because oh, yeah, there's a I bunch don't... of land on the East Coast where I know that there's not hunting allowed, so it must. Oh. Just...
1: Yeah, that's that's got to You know, I think it's probably you know, um, you know, it's it varies. Uh, I think you know you can you can write these things up however you want to. Um, we're, we're very, very pro hunting with the Alaska chapter. Uh, in fact, I would say that, um, while it's not our, you know, well, I put it this way is that, you know, we do a lot of, we do restoration for, you know, eco. I would say equally so for sort of ecosystem, um, health and for hunting. Um, hmm. there is a lot of rural communities in Southeast Alaska that, um, that you know rely on hunting and fishing opportunities it's really a you know a food security thing um yeah up there so, for sure yeah you know uh, during covid when the barges slow down and the grocery stores were were slim everyone was really thankful to have um you know full freezers uh so, n- so- nationwide
0: if you across all the chapters the whole organization is there anything that would any stance that the nature conservancy has that would give the hunting community pause?
1: You know, I can't speak for the rest of the nature conservancy. I have been with the Alaska chapter for 14 years and I feel like I got a pretty good handle on, um, where we sit there. And, um, I don't think I've ever, you know, we've ever phrased ourselves as pro hunting necessarily, but, um, uh, we are, um, heavily invested in, um protecting and restoring um wildlife habitat and i would say in large part uh, to uh, support subsistence hunting and fishing um yeah even if
0: it wasn't the even if that if sub, even if supporting subsistence hunting and fishing wasn't your goal it still would be the consequence of what you're doing right yeah, absolutely. You, know?
1: you know you know i think you know our bottom line is we we want healthy healthy communities and healthy ecosystems, they, you know, they're kind of relying on each other, we need, we need healthy communities to take care of the, of the, um, of the land, and we need healthy ecosystems to help feed the communities. Um, Yeah, there's, uh, like I said, there's a lot of communities that, you know, individuals, you know, eat, you know, 100 plus pounds, or, you know, several hundred Pounds of wild food every year, Uh, and so we're talking salmon, we're talking deer, moose. Um, Those are some of the main staples. But uh, um, yeah, there's some areas. You're in southeast. Where do you live? So I live in Juneau, uh, which is about uh, you know the middle of the panhandle. Um, This is all Clack Haida, and Simshin uh, traditional territory. Um, and I'm about a two hour flight North of Seattle. So if you're in Seattle, you get on a plane, you fly North about two hours, you fly over, um, coastal BC, and then you hit the, uh, the panhandle.
0: You also um, fly over my family's cabin, which right. is uh, okay. You know about this. Yeah, I yeah, told you yeah. 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 Um, our next door neighbor, neighbor out there, he's since moved away the guy, but the guy that was the guy that. The reason we're out there is my brother he works for fish and wildlife service and he was doing some stream monitoring work on prince of wales and there's a guy in the area good very good friend of ours his name is ron layton he found out about that my that dan was doing this work And he just wants to have his finger on the pulse of everything that happens in his, in his area. He's just very curious about things like that and anything, Mm -hmm. anything, just, just naturally curious about anything having to do with wildlife or, or conservation. And he found out that Danny was doing this work and he ended up volunteering to take Danny around to all these streams that where Dan had to get these measurements and then uh the next year he had dan come down he said you gotta come back go fishing so he came down Mm -hmm. fishing and then then both my brothers went i think the next year and then that led to us buying the cabin right next to him and he's a chief of the simsian nation nice yeah one of them yeah one of the more interesting people people i've ever met just incredibly w- generous and funny but also hard to understand and extremely temperamental
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah you know there's a lot of real uh characters up here there's no yeah question. yeah that'd be, um, that'd be a good way to summarize them yeah and then yeah uh, does it make them or does it attract them i think it attracts them and then it, it it also uh it grows them okay um yep between the the weather and the isolation and the seasonal darkness um it's easy to it's easy for those eccentric eccentricities to to grow have you done any work on prince of wales I have actually. My very first job in Southeast Alaska was on Prince of Wales. Uh, I lived on the north end of the island, and um, I was, was actually that with studied- the Nature Conservancy? No, this was before I worked with the Nature Conservancy. Um, it was a project with the uh, U.S. Forest Service, and um, we were studying flying squirrels of all species, and uh, oh, basically, yeah, kidding. the idea I was somebody else that was studying. <laughs> Yeah. So they're, they're considered an indicator species up here. And essentially the, the Tongass national forest had recently developed a conservation strategy of like uh, basically old growth reserves. So old growth habitat um, is really um, what supports all the wildlife we value up here. Um, And so they have this system of reserves of large old growth patches, medium, and then small patches that kind of connect the medium and large. And anyway, flying swirl was used as an indicator species to see if the small growth reserves were actually working, like if they could move through there and essentially, you know, um, uh, there was connectivity for breeding and all those sorts of things. Um, so it was pretty fun. I got to drive on a lot of logging roads. Uh, I got to see a lot of the island, um, and while they're out there, of course, you get to see all kinds of things, too. You know, wolves and bears and stuff like that. Oh, so I've never a seen
0: a wolf time. out there.
1: <clears throat> they're there. <laughs> and then they're a hot topic on Prince of Wales. When
0: you see uh, them, where when you would see them, where would they be? Out on the beach?
1: Um, where, I've typically seen them on the beach. Actually, I might have only seen them on the beach. Uh, that's the easiest place to see them, for sure. I think, you know, a lot of people also see them in the Alpine. When they're out deer hunting, they might see them, you know. Um, through their vine house man i swear i have like
0: podcaster amnesia things that i could recall instantaneously if i wasn't podcasting i can't remember when the record button's been hit and i know somebody else that did a bunch of flying squirrel
1: work up there and just can't think of who it is Oh, I could probably give you names, but there's a bunch of people that have worked up there. There was a recent BBC uh uh segment on them which was pretty cool if you if you go to Google and you flying squirrels Prince of Wales Alaska and they 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 get some really cool shots of the squirrels flying at night and looking for truffles in the dirt and uh Oh, they hunt truffles? Yeah, so the flying squirrels they that's that's one of their roles in the ecosystem is they move truffles around and the truffles, you know, create um Fungi that are symbiotic with the roots, and that's part of their whole role in the food web. And the- yeah, isn't there some truffle that's
0: obligate with hemlock?
1: Uh they're they're well the the truffles. I yeah, absolutely. I, the, you know, these aren't something that you and I are, would eat, but they love their little these little golden nuggets. And, okay, um, so they're they live okay on the
0: roots of. Well, this one that I'm thinking of is some one that people eat. It's not like the cherished one that everybody you know from england or whatever but people do eat the one i'm talking about
1: yeah i'm not sure if it's specific to hemlock or spruce you know our forests here are pretty simple you got uh sick sick of spruce hemlock yellow cedar red cedar some red alder um yeah now i'm basically. questioning i think
0: the one i'm thinking of is is obligate with tamarisk which you don't have there right no
1: tamarus, no.
0: Yeah. Um, so there must be a bunch of them. So they dig up truffles.
1: Yep. So they're you know they're pretty much nocturnal or crepuscular, and they they fly down at night and cruise around on the forest floor and and dig these up and you know move them around and disperse them and eat them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, they're pretty cool.
0: They oh, the biggest- they're
1: they're neat little they're a neat creature. Yeah, growing up
0: we would see him once in a while. Like there was this wood lot where there was a bunch of, it was owned by the township mm-hmm. and it had a bunch of bird houses. And we'd always go look in those bird houses. And a lot of them were occupied by flying squirrels. Yeah. So that's the way we would see mo- the vast majority. But one year and only one year when I was growing up, they were using our bird feeder at night. I don't know what the deal was there. I guess they just, by din of circumstance, found it that one year. Hmm. So you'd look out in the yard light and you could see them in the, eating seeds in the um, bird feeder. Is that the same species or are there lots of species?
1: There's a bunch of species, yeah. Oh. So we've got the northern flying squirrel up here. They're kind of like a dark gray um, and they're, and they're bigger than what you would see, like a Southern flying squirrel you might see in the kind of the mainland U S yeah. What a crazy creature. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty uh, neat. You know, I've watched, you know, we, well, basically we're live trapping them and, um, and then when you release them after, you know, you, we did whatever we were doing there with, them, uh, they would immediately run up a tree and, uh, Usually it was the closest one, and we actually would typically uh, handle them at the base of a really big old growth tree, and they would run up that tree um, you know, the second you let go of them and they'd go they'd go you know a good 100, 150 feet up. would you be holding them in your hand yep with with you know leather gloves? They they'd be, got would they teeth. be trying to bite you? Oh yeah, yep, okay. and uh and then you know and then they basically you know launch off the tree. And glide. So you would see them up there in the dark. Uh, well, you know, we would we would check the traps in the morning. And oh, so, uh, so the, the rare uh, opportunity to see yep, them, and they would they would run up a tree, and then that was their method to get you know get as far as they could. They had a pretty pretty good glide ratio, really, and then they would just take off through the canopy. Um, just so, just soar. Yep, yep. And then sometimes you know you'd see them. They'd go up a tree, and then they would soar, and they'd actually you know hit another tree. And they would go up that a bit, and they'd hit another tree. So they, they oh, can, so they
0: can't steer very good.
1: No, they can steer. Oh, they actually they're, well, you no, said hit, hit in, you. You meant it, land on intentionally land. Yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Yeah, well. no, I don't think they'd they'd stick around too long as a species if they were slamming into trees.
0: Oh, I know um, what I'm going to do the t- this tonight when we're done. I'm going to watch some flying squirrel flying videos because I don't.
1: Yeah, have, they can actually. So they you know they can kind of tip up right before they land and it breaks like you know flaps on a on an airplane
0: yeah when i was a kid Mm -hmm. one time when we when i was a kid i would just shoot anything that that my parents didn't say was expressly off limits and i shot one and i remember it flew somehow was flying along and then landed on this tree in front of me and i shot it but other than that i don't know that i've ever which is like i'm repenting to you right now I'm like I'm not proud of that in the in any way shape or form but uh I think that's the only time I saw someone fly other than uh Rocky I've seen Rocky fly a lot.
1: Yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know they look a lot like those guys in the squirrel suits actually you know if you've seen the extreme uh gliders you know uh the Red Bull types um Mm-mm. oh yeah that's a whole that's a whole sport you know um you'd see it in places like switzerland where so, they jump okay. off a t- mountaintop and glide down and they have something that
0: simulates like the membranous
1: yep it's a squirrel suit they it, it basically there's this big flap between the arms and the feet uh, yeah jump the- off a. Of, yep and they that's, just rip down the mountain, you know, a few hundred feet up above the, the deck. Okay,
0: now I'm going to watch the, spend my night watching that. <laughs>
1: yeah. You, they're called Red Bull Squirrel Suit. Well, Red Bull is just a, is just a, that's a know, sponsor energy drink, but they sponsor those okay. sorts of events and athletes.
0: If I, yeah. if I type in squirrel s-
1: flying suit, or something yes, if, flying squirrel suit. I, I think, I, I, you know, I mean, there's base jumping and then there's another one that's uh, it involves the um, the squirrel suit. I think if you just put squirrel suit in there, base jumping, you'll you'll find you'll find it. Okay. Uh, you're you are a hunter,
0: you grew up on the yes. east coast, yes, and th- I. Th- maybe this is the bet. Maybe this is an interesting way to do a podcast. Like I'm beating myself up because we just didn't even get to an introduction of you, but maybe this is just like, like a lot of books are written in this, in this nonlinear way. Why not? Right. Sure. So you're, you grew up on the East coast. You were, you were a vegetarian. Now you live in the Pacific Northwest
1: and you're a hunter. So take us through that. Sure. Yeah. You know, i yeah, I'm, I'm originally from upstate New York. Um And uh you know, my mom grew up on a farm, um, a horse farm. They trained horses, uh, steeplechase horses. So my grandfather was a, was a steeplechase jockey and a trainer. Um, So I, that's some kind of course that the horse goes through. They, they jump uh fences, and, uh, water courses, those sorts of things. So they go around the track on the grass track, you know, you see a lot of flat track where they're running around in the, in the dirt. And then the a lot of between that and dressage dressage is more of like a performance, uh, okay. like the chases. horses dancing kind of. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this is racing. Um, okay. Okay. Jumping fences. it, it's, uh, I'd say, it's is that the, what Christopher Reeves was doing when he got paralyzed? I don't know what he... I had no idea. No idea what he was doing. Okay. Um. But anyway, uh, my guess as to why I was vegetarian... Well, basically, my mom was a vegetarian. And, I, and I'm guessing that my mom was a vegetarian because she grew up on a farm and uh, the animals were really her friends. So, you know, they had... Uh, they were her pets. And so, they actually had a pet pig named Sydney um, that I swear would come right into the house and, you know, be a part of family photos, those sorts of things. And so... So yeah, you know, I just like grew up in a house. Friendly like a dog. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, Cindy the pig. Uh the two and, animals uh, that we eat that are
0: most friendly are the pig and the goat. I would say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe definitely. the chicken. Like I've had some pet chickens that I felt that like they were pretty bonded to me, you know?
1: Yeah. But yeah, you know, and I, I was a kid, I didn't know, you know, know any better. And so we grew up just uh, with a fridge full of, you know, vegetables and we ate dairy. We actually, mom sourced uh, some some fresh milk and eggs from, um, there was, a, was a, a a dairy farmer not far from our house. Uh, from oh, Betty. well, you said you were a vegetarian. Vegetarian, yeah. But I we still ate, you know. Oh, vegans
0: uh, more strict than vegetarian. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We weren't, okay. We definitely so where's had. Your, uh, where was your, your dad wasn't in the picture?
1: he was in the picture, but he's, you know, he just, uh, he, he was happy to be vegetarian too. Um, okay. Yeah.
0: So uh, your mom just kind of stiff armed you two into, eating,
1: <laughs> we didn't know any better. And honestly, like, steak. I think even at that age, you know, it kind of made sense to us. Cause really we, you know, we were in, um, you know, suburban, suburban ish, upstate New York and, uh, you know, access to really fresh meat really, um, wasn't available you know you'd yeah. be buying whatever was at the store I um, suspect that if I, if I was
0: if I wasn't a hunter I I would probably be a vegetarian <laughs> although yeah okay yeah. it's interesting though where I live it's a it's a egg community you know yep I have a friend here from New Zealand he doesn't hunt but he works he's a counselor in the school system. Mm -hmm. And he eats all the meat he eats. He just gets like one of my students, his, their family had these three goats and they didn't want them anymore. Or they raised some four H pigs Mm -hmm. and there was one that didn't, they didn't show and sell that kind of thing. Yeah so living here i might not even if i didn't hunt but
1: living yeah. where you grew up i might have been i probably would yeah you know i think basically but at some point you know as kids you you know you're buying school lunch you're eating chicken nuggets so there was sort of this natural transition from being a vegetarian to to eating some meats but honestly like you know frozen when does that happen still don't look advertising to me uh you know in high school okay. um you know, we would have turkey at our, you know, relative's house, uh on Thanksgiving, those sorts of things. But I would really your didn't mom start or just Just us ki- just the kids, really. I not think my your mom, dad even. Uh no, he would. He would. Okay. Uh, just- he probably started eating more meat later. Um but I didn't really start eating meat until I moved to Alaska. And uh it just really made sense once I got here and um you know, I I definitely ate some fish and seafood growing up. We'd go to the shore and have, you know, uh, clam chowder and cod and those sorts of things. Um, but it wasn't a huge part of our diet. But then once I moved to Alaska, um, you know, uh, you can you you're allowed to catch a ton of salmon depending on where you are in Alaska. And um, so I, my first couple winters here, I would go dip net fishing and I, I'd catch like 30 fish. And uh, thirty salmon. These are big fish, like you know, ten pounds salmon. Um, and uh, Silvers? Uh, uh, these, oh, well, this particular uh, area was sockeyes. Sockeye. That's what um, they. Isn't
0: that what they normally dip net as
1: sockeye? Yeah, that's the typical dip netting fish is a sockeye. Um, and uh, you know, these have strong, strong runs, and they're not really biting on a hook at that point. They're just heading upriver. Well, they never bite on a hook. I don't think. I some people kind of like you know figure out how to t- sneak them into biting a hook, but they're not. That's they're not feeding at yeah, that
0: point. Yeah, I'm unclear on that. They might just be <laughs> lying in them. You know.
1: Yeah, yeah, and Funny. and and yeah. I mean, and so he down here, there's not as many sockeye opportunities. That was more up north. But um, yeah, and then basically once I moved to Juneau about uh 15 years ago, um you know, I just had a lot of, a lot of buddies that were, were deer hunting and just sounded like a ton of fun to me. Um, and, uh, and you know, you get to bring a bunch of great meat home. And so, uh, I've been hunting every, every, every year I try to get at least one or two. Um, how do you guys uh, do
0: it? Do you, do you just hike in from a road somewhere?
1: Ah, no, there's very few roads here. So I could probably maybe just paint a picture of the landscape. So um, Southeast Alaska is a island archipelago, as as you know, but just for the listeners. Mm -hmm. And so it's a ton of islands. Uh, There's a mainland, but there's this huge ice field, you know, not far from town. You know, the ice fields are probably all of 10 miles from my house. I'm looking out my window right now at the mountain range behind the town and then so there's there's not a whole lot of land between kind of the, the ocean and the ice fields on the mainland, but there's lots of land on all the little islands. And so Juno is totally landlocked. And so to order to get here, you either got to get on a plane or a boat. <laughs> so a ferry, um, typically. Uh, and all of our stuff comes in by barge or cargo plane. And so where we're to hunting,
0: use to use the vernacular, the uh the Alaskan vernacular or parlance you're not on the road network
1: right on the road Becker. Yeah. There, there are just a couple communities that are on the road network uh, that's Haines and Skagway up North. Um, and so all, all the hunting we do is on, you know, there are some deer on the mainland, um, but not as many as there are on the islands. Conditions are just a little harsher in the mainland. Um, just as far as productivity and it's colder and there's more snow and um, so typically, uh, you know, you're you're either you're, you're taking a boat um, in most cases uh, to someplace outside of town, you know, anywhere from twenty minutes away to an hour away, uh, and you're you're hunting in a uh, area where there's no sign of anybody. Oh, um, no, that you, sounds fun. And you rarely see anybody. <laughs> so no. unless you're hunting on opening weekend and you're right near town you know you're you're all by yourself which
0: is pretty cool um do you and your friends sometimes sleep out there or is it always day tripping
1: yeah you know i used to just day trip it um but uh i i kind of hunted all the places nearby where you would do something like that enough times that i've been kind of you know looking to go to new places. Yeah. Yeah. um, And so that's meant, you know, leaving the night before hiking up into the Alpine. Um, And I think as I get older too, I just appreciate having a, you know, full tank of gas when I wake up in the morning to go hunt rather than starting at three in the morning and, you know, hiking for four hours and then hunting, you know. uh, Yeah. Oh, you meant
0: metaphorically full tank of gas.
1: Metaphorically a full tank of gas. Yeah. Yeah. Wake okay. up in the morning, feel sharp. I feel like uh you know, I used to do it all one day where I would, you know, get up two or three in the morning, spend, you know, three, four, five hours getting up into the alpine in the dark and then, you know, look for a deer and oh. try to get one and then, you know, it'd be like a twenty four hour
0: oh.
1: uh, ordeal. And so I'll work
0: my I'll work my butt <laughs> off, but as long as I my, my limit comes at, I got to get a decent night's sleep, man. That sounds
1: amazing. Yeah, but I guess, but then you got to carry that all that overnight gear, though. So, I mean, the gear is getting way lighter now, but you figure, you know, you got an extra 10 pounds of overnight gear. Well, um, yeah,
0: but at least you're not starting out at your house. Yeah. Going on a long boat ride and then yep. starting to hike to get up yep. there at daylight, you know.
1: Yeah. And then having
0: to take the boat all the way home. So, <laughs> yeah. you, you, what do you go out? for two or three nights at a stretch?
1: You know, I got two little kids now, so I've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old, so I'm not allowed to go for as long as I'd like. Mm. Uh, but so typically I would go out for one or two nights probably at most. And, you know, typically if if I'm in the right zone and, um, you know, the weather's good, uh, you're either going to find a deer there or not within a day or two. Um, you might get up there and, uh, you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time or the weather's terrible and you can't see, um, or it's just deathly, you know, quiet and you've got no noise cover, um, or the snow's crunchy. Um, so yeah, you really, you know, a day or two should be enough to, to, you know, find something if you're going to find something. Um, yeah. Okay. So you went from.
0: Kind of, I don't know, kind of a sissy East Coast vegetarian dude to a badass black tail deer hunting dude. that's a ravenous carnivore
1: i I, i'm 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 still relatively uh you know humble about my uh hunting uh exploits i i don't actually own any camo
0: humility in hunting is a is very
1: refreshing (laughs) but you wouldn't you wouldn't know it if you met me on the street i i don't own any camo and uh you know i don't i uh it's it's part of who I am now, but, um, I'm also, you know, an avid skier and uh frail runner and all these other things. Um, but come hunting season. So hunting season here is really long. It starts, uh, October 1st and then it's bucks only for August and September. Um, and then it's bucks and does in some places mm-hmm. all the way through, end of the year so through the end of december so it's a really nice long season and um depending on when you hunt in the season they're all in different places so my favorite is the alpine hunt Uh, i got nice long days um you know cleaner shots in many cases uh and it's bucks only and the bucks are like way bigger um than the does and uh, i just prefer to, to shoot a buck over a doe and then uh you know, as the season goes on, you know, mid-season, they're a little hard to find. You know, they could be anywhere in the woods. They're not really consolidated. And then, you know, late season, there's a bunch of snow in the mountains. It's, you know, it's winter. And uh, you might find some kind of beach combing and down in the beach fringe, you know, later in the year. And that's a fun time of year, too, especially if you didn't get one during the alpine season. How long have you been married? Oh, geez, this is a trick question, right? Um <laughs> 2016. <laughs> oh
0: jeez. Yeah. That should have just It's it, you know some it's funny to me some people yeah, like me I'm I I am a space cadet and I can't keep track of my shit at all, but if you ask me how long I've been married or how old I am, there's no hesitation. Oh yeah. You're probably somebody that you'd have to think about how old you are if you don't know how long you've been married.
1: That's true. I don't. I have my the, wife says <laughs> damn it, that,
0: that's. It's almost like it's Mendelian inherited. You know, yeah. it's that discreet of a trait. You either n- can just rattle off how old you are and how long you've been married, or you can't. I'm fixated on ho- how old I am.
1: Oh, really? My wife says I'm terrible with time and calendars. I'm. I'm. I have a more fluid uh, approach to things. Where's your wife from? She's actually from Washington, so she's a little more north. Well, she's definitely m- more northwest in origins than I am. She grew up in Bellingham, Washington. So, where's we she saw at with all the hunting and stuff? What's that? Which where's she at with all this hunting? She loves it when I bring home the meat. Okay, she's um, she doesn't it. go out with me, um, yeah. but she's very supportive. I think when we first started dating, she wasn't so sure about it uh but once she got used to having it around and having a you know a full freezer that she can just pull out burgers uh whenever she wants to and doesn't have to think about it um she expects it now uh which is great that's cool <laughs> i get I, I get i get told not to come home until i until oh I get one. that's cool <laughs> that's cool so yeah. uh yeah
0: do, is she is she does she like outdoor adventure
1: Oh yeah. You know, you know, she's, you know, she's a big, uh, backpacker, camper, um, skier, uh, all that stuff. Yeah. Does she she come with you on these hunting trips? She doesn't go on hunting trips with me. Um, but we do all kinds of other trips, you know, with Mm -hmm. the boat and with the kids, uh, outside backpacking in the summer and the winter. Um, you know, I I you know, I I I probably go out with friends hunting about half the time, um but I often go out on my own. Uh You have your be, own boat then. Yeah, I often and I I um feel like I'm actually a lot more successful when I go out by myself because I'm I'm just paying a lot more attention and um uh, not worried about, you know, shooting my buddy and uh yeah, and I'm 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 probably more comfortable pushing it a bit when I'm just by myself. Um, that's funny
0: because that's that's me that's me to a <clears> T.
1: <throat> but if I've got a friend that's you know, you know, I I usually ask folks if they're interested when I've got time, and I'd rather go with them even if I might not be as likely to see one. And if they're not available and I've got a free weekend, and then, uh, then I go on my own. Yeah, but. Yeah. And I've got some, you know, everyone's got a little different style. I've got some friends I feel like are more similar style to me and I like to stay moving. I don't like sitting around. So I'm definitely the itchy, the itchy hunter that just keeps walking. I just walk slow and I just walk all day. Mm. Um, and that seems to work for me.
0: Yeah. Um, when you, so you guys eat a lot of burgers, game burgers,
1: yeah. Depending on the size of the deer, you know, I probably grind up half of it. And then the other half I'm doing, you know, different kinds of roasts and steaks and, uh, uh, things like that. Um, you know, the bigger bucks, you can get some nice steaks out of the hindquarters. Um, do you, do
0: you mix any fat with your burger?
1: Nope. None. Um, do you have a hard
0: time keeping it together on the grill?
1: I'll add some egg and some panko or something in there to kind of, and I'll add, you know, depending on what I'm in the mood for, I'll add a bunch of other stuff too. Some onions and garlic and I can, you know, get into all the spices. My
0: my brother,
1: so here,
0: it's very easy to get your hands on some beef fat or some hog fat. So I mix in 10% beef fat or hog fat. But my brother lives up there in Anchorage. He was telling me that He doesn't add anything either that if you, you, if you, if you, I like the way you're going, but just if you didn't have eggs or something or eggs are extremely expensive right now, he said, if you mix in salt with the ground meat and form your patties and put them in the fridge and let them get cold, real cold, that they'll stick together on the grill. Good. Huh? Just.
1: Yeah. I've never had a problem with that. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've, I've experimented a little bit. I got a friend that makes a really good sausage where he'll, uh, throw a bunch of, um, there's a, there's a butcher in town, Jerry's meats. Um, and they've got some phenomenal bacon. Um, and I'll throw some of that in the grinder with the meat. And, uh, I've made some sausage that way just as something fun and different, but I don't do that every year. Um, you know, I'll throw some mushrooms in the grinder too. Um, really? What do you do to make sausage? Yeah, so like when I'm when I'm when I'm talking sausage, I'm talking like a you know, I'm not actually putting it in a shell or anything like that. It's just like a you know a little 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 patties, like little burgers. Okay, uh, yeah. Th- that I'll, I'll put sausage. on like a flat bulk sheet sausage. and freeze. What's that? Bulk bulk sausage. Yeah, well, I'll make little patties and I'll freeze them in little patties. It'll be little yeah, nuggets. but
0: like that's what they uncased sausage they call yes. it bulk sausage. Yes.
1: But- yeah. I'll cook those up, you know, with breakfast, um, and that could be a fun way to start the day.
0: Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm yeah. I I usually when I'm making when I want bulk sausage, I just thought upon a pound of burger and add in the stuff then. Afterwards, you know, but I I make a lot of case stuff too. Right now, for the last couple of years, my friend and I've had a curing chamber and. Right now we got a bunch of hard cured salami and pepperoni brewing that I'm pretty excited yeah. about. Last year we it was the first year we did it. We did it, stuffed it in hog casings, so you can imagine like a hard cured salami that's about three quarter inch diameter. But this year we did them like those big collagen casings. They're like three inches across. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited to see how that's going to turn out. Well, yeah. We got 25 pounds of these of those, like they're about 18 inches long, three inches around, you know. And you know, this is the kind where you add in the bacteria and everything, and they just got to sit in a chamber. We use a smoker. And we, there's a dehumidifier in there and a humidifier in there and a heating element in there. Pretend it's a fridge. We just don't need the fridge because it's we're doing it in the winter. But you, mm-hmm. could, you normally you'd use a fridge and then you buy these cheap little the humid, humidity controller. You plug in the humidifier, humidifier to one port and you plug in the dehumidifier to the other port. And anytime it gets too damp the humid dehumidifier kicks on anytime Uh it gets too dry the humidifier kicks on and the same thing with the heating element and if you were doing it in the fridge you'd have the fridge plugged in because you're trying to keep it about 60 degrees and 70 percent humidity while while the stuff is brewing um
1: Fun, yeah. I, I haven't experimented a whole ton with different ways to do it. I've definitely made some jerky. Uh I've got a smoker that we, you know, we use for salmon all the time. Yeah. Um, now you with
0: this you might have guessed, but you're never cooking it. Yeah. It's just it never is heated at all. So cool. Um that's cool. You smoke some fish. You better smoke some fish living up there. Holy crap.
1: Yeah, yeah, no there's uh there's no shortage of fish up here if you know what you're doing. Um yeah, my I I've been catching a, I've caught lots of salmon over the years, but my my goal this next year is to uh figure out halibut and um last year we uh got um uh, figured out shrimp a little bit. There's spot prawns up here which are super delicious. I just got a pot puller for the boat.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's that's a big that's my when we go to our cabin that's the main thing I do. Spot prawns is, I mean, I fish halibut and all that too, but the thing, it's not even the most enjoyable thing. It's just they're so good that I want to <laughs> so go, go yeah. home. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I I focus hard on the spot prawns.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There, I think there's there's more. So that you can't you can't prawn fish right around Juno just because it was probably overfished back in the day, but you, you know, you go 15, 20 minutes from town. Um, and there's some spots. I'm just figuring out, you know, poking friends to give me some secrets where to go and then figuring out the gear. You know, it's so deep. You got to be fishing at like 300 feet and you don't want to lose all your gear. And so I, I did a bunch of sets last year and I would say about half of them were successful. And those that were successful, you know, if you come back with a five gallon bucket of spot prawns, you're pretty excited to do it again. Oh, I'd
0: say that that's very successful.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah the huge. most we've ever gotten is probably a five-gallon bu- bucket of tails. Does okay, that that mean, that's a lot. What would that be at two and a half or three gallon, five-gallon buckets of shrimp? But that was extreme. I, our neighbor, I was telling you about, that guy had a knack, and he so he would routinely come home with six pots. He'd come on wow. to two, two, five gallon buckets of tails.
1: Wow. No, I, my, that my big catch was with the heads on. And I, what I figured out but is still, it's all
0: that's the, pretty damn good. That's
1: a lot. I, I figured it's all about the bait. And so I'm, I'm not going to tell everyone on the, on the air here, what I'm using, but yeah. I think that makes the biggest difference. Um, oh, will you tell me after we hang up or how long or how long you soak it? That's another thing.
0: He's um, avoiding He's the He's avoiding the question, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you, you I'm going to ask you again
0: after we <laughs> stop recording. Well, then, it sounds
1: like you're doing just fine. I mean, you don't have to. You can just ask around. Yeah, know, but who knows?
0: Something. Maybe you got the right bait. <laughs> and I, I'm doing everything else right, but uh, I got the
1: wrong bait.
0: Who knows yeah. what would happen if I
1: had the Who right knows? Bait. It could be ballpark hot dogs. Yeah. They like weird stuff.
0: It's so hard to figure that stuff out because you you could you could say aha now i got the right bait but it could have been that it was a good day for some other reason
1: yep yep no i you know as a scientist i use a little bit of experimental design to make sure okay. that i control for okay. these things
0: okay
1: not mm-hmm. right. in the same exact spot <laughs> you know with, with something slightly different
0: yeah you yeah. need to have paired pl- pla- paired pots so yep. you dri- dr- replicated paired pots different depths
1: yeah you yeah i mean
0: there could be a depth, to- there could be a depth by a depth by bait interaction where totally. what the best bait is depends on the depth yep like they might yep. like halibut carcasses when you're shallow and salmon carcasses when you're deep or dog food or whatever when you're deep Yep.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, unless you're an old time fisherman, it's a it's a steep learning curve. Yeah,
0: they're finicky. That is for sure.
1: Okay, with that, with
0: the science thing, that's a good segue. Tell us, because that was a man. That was a long um, digression, right there. I uh, I think it was interesting, though. You know, so. Uh, I, uh, I hope others do too, but let's get back on track. Tell us what you do research wise for the nature conservancy.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, I do all kinds of things. Um, Is it all well, research or is it some management? Uh, I typically do research to, you know, inform management. So this we I work with, uh, we have a forester on staff here, um, who's more directly involved with designing prescriptions, treatments, things like that? More involved with um, you know hiring contractors to to like put fuels these treatments and thinning and things like so, that. So, um, in in Southeast Alaska, sort of the the thing we're up against after an area logged is that the trees grow back so thick that it um, eliminates you know good deer habitat. And so we actually have to do a lot of thinning. Um, and so the, the lingo is that it's stem excluded. So you get these areas that were logged and they're good deer habitat in the summer for, I don't know, like 15, 20 years. It's just a big old salad bowl right after they cut it for a while. Um, but in the winter, when they're actually, you know, limited, um, those clear cuts are just covered in snow and they're not good for anything. And so if you have a harsh winter, uh, in an area with, um, a lot of timber harvest, uh, the deer don't do as well and they're just not as productive. Um, and so once those areas kind of grow beyond that, you know, 20, 20 year mark, um, how tall are they at when, uh, you know, trees grow a little slower up here than they do in a lot of places, but, um, you know, you're, you're talking like a 20 foot tree, uh, 20 feet at 20 years. Something like that, yeah. They don't they don't grow very fast, and um, but it's dog hair. It's dog hair. Basically, the branches just grow out and start touching each other because they're so dense. They will grow right up next to each other. You know, they'll be a few feet apart, and then the branches will kind of grow out and and, and uh, connect with each other, and then it just shades out the whole understory, and so it kills all the deer food there, you know, all the blueberries and things like that and the Forbes. And so ideally we get in there before everything gets shaded out and all the seed stock gets lost and we do these thinning treatments. So you might do thinning and might do gaps, um, sort of big holes in the, in the sand. Um, and so, so one of my most recent studies actually was, uh, this LIDAR project. So, you know, LIDAR has been around, uh, for a while. It's this technology where, you know, you eventually fly over the forest and it, rains lasers down and they bounce back up to the sensor on the plane. And it kind of gives you a 3d model of the forest. Um, and then my study was looking at if uh, we could use basically some GPS collar data. We had a data set where uh, they collared like, um, trying to remember now like 40 does and this area that we collected LIDAR. And uh, we looked at if we could use the LIDAR to essentially um to build a predictive model where where the does go in the winter um and it it did the lidar did an incredible job um so it was a bunch of uh fancy modeling um so the
0: lidar is quantifying vegetation and then you're and then but and you also have so you have spatially explicit vegetation data and you have location
1: data on deer Yep. They're right. Yep. So you just, How'd yeah, you so trap just,
0: the deer to get them collared real quick?
1: Yeah. So that I collaborated with uh um uh, a bunch of researchers uh at Fish and Game, the Forest Service, um, University of Idaho, and uh uh the the person at University of Idaho, Sophie Gilbert, um she collected GPS collar data and she had to go out there and dart them, um, which was no small task to get out there and dart deer. You got to get pretty close to dart a deer. Um, What a fun job that would be. (laughs) So you got to dart them and then you got to, you know, uh, take your samples, collar them, wake them back up and get out of there. Um, What time of year was she doing that? I'm not sure what time of year she was doing that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah. In the summer, I'm assuming. Um, I don't want
0: to lose the thread here because it's complicated. So go yeah. go, go, go ahead with, with what you were with your yeah. Project. So
1: you know we've there's been a deer model that the Tongass National Forest has used for a long time. It's called the Interagency Habitat Suitability Index, and it's largely based on um, air photos. So basically, you know, imagine Google Earth, and 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 there's a technician trained to kind of circle you know, different patches of forest and then they've got all these plots out on the ground and they connect like what those plots are to these, you know, these little blobs on the map where they circle different types of forest. And it's a pretty crude way to map habitat, but that's kind of the best we've had for a long time. And they're experimenting now with um, whether or not collecting LIDAR is going to be, you know, is going to work in Alaska Um, because our forests are, um, you know, pretty complex just with, you know, all the old growth and the muskegs and things like that. They're just not as uniform as other places. So anyway, we, this project was kind of a trial run to see if we could use the ladder to map deer habitat. And it did a really good job. And so, um, when you say
0: do a good job, you got more hits, uh, GPS collar hits in certain kinds of habitats than others.
1: No, nah, basically what you do with these models is you, you know, you, tr- you basically, you build a model with on some percentage of the data and you withhold some other percentage of the data, the data being like where the deer actually went. And then you, s- you use that model to say, okay, this is the, you know, it gives you each little cell on the landscape. It gives you a little, you know, predicted probability of current. So it says, oh yeah, deer are definitely going to be here. And then you use the other data to say, okay, uh, was the model good at you know predicting where the other data was yeah, and, like and a you jack, get
0: a, a out of like a jackknife knife procedure yeah you
1: and, you, and you and you get a you get an accuracy score like how good is it do at, at predicting what we know is true um and using the lidar it got a much higher accuracy score than um using these big these big polygons and then and another interesting okay. sort of even finer note there is that it, it was much higher accuracy at a at a much finer resolution. So okay. the lidar can like map deer habitat on the scale of like and say like a urban parcel, you know, like a thirty meter, or hundred feet by hundred feet, where those polygons are kind of drawn at the scale of like neighborhoods, you know, okay. six square, you know, six square kilometer, or something like that. So not only was it more accurate, but it was more accurate at a much finer resolution. So and, in, um,
0: for the layman the lidar is telling you in more detail what it is the deer are queuing
1: on and what they exactly what exactly. they like exactly it, so the lidar tells y'all kinds of school stuff like how tall the trees are how wide the trees are and that you know really are the things that you know thrive where the deer go in the winter so in the winter here in southeast it, it you know it will get we'll get a few feet of snow at sea level and so those winter months is when the deer you know are are going to make it or not you know it's right. pretty pretty plentiful in the in the um in the summer even in the clear cuts uh but come winter they all the deer have to find the big trees because the big trees have the strong branches that could hold the snow and then it's not so deep below and they can dig down and get what food they need for the winter um and so um we we're we're, we're a huge huge advocate of um uh stopping old growth logging um and um we're also supportive of uh logging young growth so areas that have already been cut um you know we're supportive of uh you know a, a, a young growth industry that's appropriately scaled, you know, to the resource. Uh, I think the, you know, the first round of harvest in the Tongass, um, the science wasn't great. There wasn't a lot of good information and, um, you know, they just, they, they harvested too quickly and they, you know, they ran out of trees. It should have been a, you know, a sustainable resource. Um, and nowadays, you know, it, there's basically community consensus that, um, it doesn't make sense to harvest any more old growth. Mm. Um, Although there is some, you know, remaining old growth sales, um, that's kind of, it's, uh, the Tongass is committed at least to phasing out of old growth in like the next 10 years. What percentage
0: of the
1: land in Tongass is still old growth? Good question. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's lots of, you know, protected areas of different kinds, different layers of protection. Um, I don't have the number off the top of my head. Is it more like five or more like 90? It's, I wouldn't say it's high as 90, but it's, yeah. I mean, like, it depends on what you define as like all lands on the Tongass or the sort of the development LUDs. So there's, there's different watersheds that are, that are, you know, that are protected for one, one way or another. And then there's others that are considered the development landscape. And um, some of those are still old growth. And um, so depending upon, you know, generally the federal administration, um, those are uh, potentially targeted for timber timber sales or not. Um, I'm
0: trying to get a sense for, is it, Oh, is it just or you're fighting over not fighting over but you're advocating for maintaining, maintaining old growth on the 3% of old growth that's left in the Tongass or is
1: it is it are oh you, it's it, like up above 50% okay. you know there's there's just a lot trying of to growth. get yeah, growth, yeah 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 there's a lot of old growth out there okay. um but you know some of the areas that were harvested were general like you know we're around communities and so the areas that are more readily accessible and, you know, traditionally used for hunting and fishing. Um, And so folks in those areas are saying now that, you know, we're more interested in um, growing deer than, um, you know, using the forest as a, as a, uh, as a lumber, you know, farm. That's Um, the locals. Oh yeah, for sure interesting um, there are some communities because... that have a tie to a, to a there's like one medium sized mill left and um i think there's um there you know there are definitely some people that have jobs and families tied to the mill but um uh we've also had a lot of community meetings where folks are happy you know they're interested in other economic alternatives if you know if if they can find them if the yeah. if the, the city can generate those jobs. Um,
0: yeah. But the deer are a priority.
1: hundred percent. And salmon. Um, yeah, yeah. So
0: if it get, things get clear cut, that has implications for salmon too, right? Like.
1: Yeah. It it up really streams and- Well, there's, there's, you know, the, depending on what, what land you're on. So like state land has a smaller riparian buffer. So they have to buffer the creeks and the streams, salmon streams. Um, uh, and on state and private land, the buffers are, are pretty small. Um, federal land's a little bigger, but, um, there's, you know, there's, there's always going to be runoff issues. Um, and there's always going to be issues with, um, blow You know, if you've got this tiny little riparian buffer and you get a big windstorm, it could all just blow right over and then it's not doing anything any good. Um, yeah. you know, so, one thing then, we have with down by us is there's some coves like
0: estuaries around the creeks that were logged in the eighties and the logs were stored in there mm. and, and the bark fell off the logs and the bark is several feet deep from, I mean, huge areas that are the yeah. bottom is just dead. Yeah. Cause it's just all bark and will be for probably millennia, I would guess.
1: Yeah. I think there's some, there's some old uh, log docks in Southeast where some of that's going on, but you know, I, when you fly over Southeast Alaska, there's still just a lot of wild terrain, which is which is pretty cool. yeah um, man that
0: is really cool yeah
1: uh any
0: this has been a this is a, like a already a very complete podcast in terms of my goals and what I wanted to chat with you. Is there anything more you want to say about your research or anything else?
1: Oh boy. Um, let's see. I wrote down some notes of things I wanted to say potentially. Um, no, not exactly. Uh, I just, uh, I found your invitation intriguing and, um, you know, really proud of what my organization does as far as... As you looking, should be. Yeah, looking for solutions and really just focusing on habitat and any everyone benefits from that. Um, and if, uh, you know, folks want to learn more, they can go to nature.org. And if they want to know more about the Alaska chapter, they just put word slash Alaska in there. Um, and... uh If I was
0: living yeah. in your neck of the woods as a hunter... You would be an organization that I'd want to promote just selfishly for if I was concerned about nothing but hunting, because you're doing work that's relevant to deer. So yeah, and like I guess the message to the hunting community is, yeah, look into Nature Conservancy and what what they're doing in your neck of the woods. You know,
1: yeah, I I would know, check it I'm out. going to. i would check it out Yeah, yeah there's all kinds of cool stuff going across the nature conservancy i you know sometimes i tune into these broader organization calls uh often i'm too busy to to do it but it's really you know each chapter is really trying to tune into what matters to people um and in some places that might be ranching other places that might be deer hunting opportunities um you know and and we also like to work with people that are, you know, developing. So, you know, citing where to do renewable energy projects, those kinds of things. Um, we're not all about um just protect protect protect. It's it's we're definitely interested in sort of the grand solution. Um yeah. So, yeah. Um I you know, I'm just thank you for taking the time to call me and chit-chat in. If there's, you know, if you got many follow-up questions, yeah, uh, I'm here.
0: Okay, great, and thank you, Colin. This I think this has been a fascinating discussion. I learned a lot, and um, yeah, I, I encourage anyone listening to check out the Nature Conservancy, what cool. they have to offer.
1: Cool, yeah, and I, that all that info on the land trust, uh, and easements, and whatnot—that's definitely not not, not my like I, background. Uh, like so I said, I
0: got mace take, mace take that, hat some
1: of that with a grain of salt. So. Um, okay. But once we got past that, I feel like uh, I was on. No,
0: you get like a C plus pretty on that. Pretty shirt, good footing there. But you get a, you get an A on your own stuff, so that's yeah. what matters.
1: Good. We just don't we don't really do that here, so I can't. You'll have all to right. interview somebody from a chapter, uh, uh, you know, down you know in the lower forty eight, as we say in Alaska, and they'll yeah. they'll give you an earful on how to do all that. I'm sure. All right. Well, Colin,
0: I really appreciate it. Uh, best to you, and and let's try to stay in touch.
1: All right. Sounds okay. good. Thanks, Take Matt. Take
0: care.